filming for change. Silla, I'm very happy to have you here. Since quite some years I'm following your work already and I'm very inspired. In 1982 you founded the Oxford Research Group to develop dialogue with nuclear weapon decision makers. What did you learn out of that time and what effect did it have on your life? What I learned from working on nuclear weapons policy making was that the whole process in the UK and in all the other countries was unaccountable. In other words, nobody was taking responsibility for it. The decisions were simply announced. And when it is a question of weapons of mass destruction, this is not acceptable. So I set out to find out who makes decisions on nuclear weapons in all the nuclear countries and why. The effect that had on me was to, first of all, I was very angry. And I, I was also very afraid for my daughter because she was small and I didn't want her to grow up under the threat of nuclear holocaust. And in fact, we came very near to a nuclear explosion in 1983 when I started this work. So I was propelled by that. But during 21 years of this work, I learned that the only way to change the minds and hearts of those who make the decisions is by dialogue and listening and not attacking them, but uh, enabling them to listen to another point of view. And in that way, very slowly, but gradually, we began to gain their confidence and their trust and to get them to talk to each other and to their critics and eventually to begin to lay the basis of some international treaties. And if I may ask, you also made research about the decision makers of nuclear weapons. What did you find out about the Uh, how many men were there? How many women were there in this decision? Well, in 1988, we published a who's who. In other words, a huge book that had 650 biographies of all the key weapons decision makers in the world. In other words, people who design nuclear warheads, people who provide the intelligence for new weapons, people who deploy the warheads, people who uh, pay for them, people who agree to them politicians. And amongst those 650 biographies were only five women. And I interviewed the five women and they all thought exactly like the men did. In other words, they had changed their thinking to think like men. And when I did cognitive maps of the thinking of some of these decision makers, at the very basis of their decision-making was feeling threatened. So from their very core, as children, they had felt threatened and that was why they were doing this work, to feel safer by having a massive, totally destructive weapon. So today you are here to speak at the FAMQ conference about feminine intelligence. Mm -hmm. What should we know about this? Ah. Feminine intelligence is um, available, of course, equally to women and to men. And it has some very distinct characteristics. Uh, one of them is compassion. 
Now we often think of compassion as something soft. Actually, compassion, particularly in a harsh circumstance, is one of the most courageous things to do, to have compassion. Uh, I give you quickly the story of Aung San Suu Kyi. When she was leading um, protesters in the streets of Rangoon in Burma, one of the times she was not under house arrest, and they came round a corner and they were faced by a phalanx of machine guns. And she immediately knew that the soldiers with their fingers on the triggers were as frightened as the students behind her. So she told the students, sit down, because she knew they were too scared to walk on. And she, this tiny woman with a flower in her hair, walked on towards the machine guns. Even when the order was given, release safety catches, prepare to fire. And she walked with such grace that she could put her hand out on the lead gun and lower it. And nobody got killed. Now, that was her empathy, her compassion for both the soldiers and the students. And completely forgetting herself because she had already mm, transformed her fear. So compassion is a key element. Inclusivity is another that um, instead of using competition and I must get ahead and I must be stronger and I must win, we go for cooperation and we say nobody left out. So we include the weakest, those without a voice, those who cannot defend themselves. And this is the only way to move forward. Now the rich poor gap in the world is that I think it's 62 billionaires in the world have more money than half of humanity. 62 people have more money than half of humanity. It's how crazy. many men, how many women? <laughs> I have no idea. It's not a gender issue, but this is the issue of we get ahead at the expense of everybody else. So what feminine intelligence is, is inclusion. So and there are many more characteristics, but that's two for you. So uh, what are the first steps to integrate this deep wisdom of feminine intelligence into my life? Or how can I increase my own empathy? I think the, the greatest gift is learning to listen. Most of us think we're good listeners and we are not good listeners. So we have to learn to, when we're speaking with somebody, especially somebody we don't agree with or we have an issue with, is to just give them our full attention, keep eye contact and really listen to them. Even to the extent that when you've finished speaking, I can repeat back to you what you said. Now that is the greatest gesture of respect I can give you. And it is the most powerful um, tool for diffusing and transforming conflict. The most powerful. So this is the first thing I would teach anybody or share with anybody is to really learn to listen. If you have a teenage child and, and, uh, and they are impossible, in quotes, and if, you, if we can really listen to them deeply, 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 then they begin to feel safe enough to trust to say what they really feel. But if we keep saying, are you okay? What's the matter? 
but just listen and respect. Um, and your new book, uh, Pioneering the Possible, has the claim Awakened Leadership for a World that Works. Can you describe this kind of leadership and why it is so important for us? Mm. Awakened leadership is when um, our leaders use their consciousness. Um, consciousness is a mixture of the head, the heart and the belly. So we're using our intuition, our compassion and our good mind together. Most uh, leaders, in quotes, use just their minds. So their minds are busy, busy, busy defending, strategizing, making plans, hatching plots, all that. But that is not wise leadership. Wise leadership comes from waking up, awakened, waking up to what is happening in the world. And what is the challenges that we face in the world today are so enormous that it is almost as though humanity is being offered by the challenges we have created like <coughs> global warming and financial crisis and migration, all these things we have created. It's almost as though humanity is being invited to evolve, to develop our consciousness. And my view is that if we refuse to develop our consciousness, the, the planet doesn't need us anymore. So this is a very, very big time for humanity to wake up, really wake up. And how would our world look like if we would have more awakened leaders? How could it be? What would be your vision about? Mm, if, this, if our planet had more awakened leaders, there would be far less moment-to-moment um, -moment celebrity. We would pay attention to longer-term issues, not just what's on Facebook today. We would really care about what's happening to the global whole, because we are a global village now. And therefore we need to look ahead. We need to take care of seven generations hence, which is what indigenous leaders tell us. The leaders of today must um, plan for seven generations ahead. So we need, for example, guardians of future generations in every government, and their job is to prevent actions that will harm future generations. We need, um, on the board of every corporation, we need two millennials, one female, one male, the younger generation, who are far more awake to what needs to happen than we do. They prioritize people, planet and purpose before profit. So that when they go for a job in a big company, they're going to be asking, what are you doing about the planet? What's your environmental policy? Is it real? They have the power now. And they will be 50% of the consuming class in 2020. So we still have hope to find out. We, we, we should, if we, if we seriously share these concepts and the many organizations that are springing up all over the planet now, I, I made a list of them recently for this, for this summit. I made a list and it, it's at least, 
a hundred new women's organizations springing up in one year, all related to consciousness. So this is a phenomenon of our age. It's very, very exciting. And of course, it's uh, available to and used by men as well as women. Yeah, this would be my next question. What can especially, how can especially men benefit from feminine intelligence? How they can integrate? Well, men, men have exactly the same capacity as women to be intuitive, to use their intuition. In other words, instead of only using the mind to use, to use our hara, the seat of intelligence, which is in the belly, men have an enormous capacity for compassion, for listening, but they're not, our culture doesn't encourage them, it doesn't prioritize that. It prioritizes competition and all sorts of other um, capacities, but that's old-fashioned now, that's last century. The capacities that make a real man now are these capacities of what we call feminine intelligence. And so many men are supporting women to develop this and doing it themselves. There's a wonderful program in the UK now, and I think it's spreading worldwide, called Noble Man. And this is women supporting men to develop these qualities. And I've been to be a support person on this program, and it's wonderful. Wow, beautiful. I will check this out. Mm -hmm. <coughs> um, your NGO Peace Direct mm -hmm. supports peace builders in war and conflict zones and is also partner of the Global Peace Builders Summit, which is taking place in September in Berlin. Uh, why is it so important to activate civil society for peace process? Ah, the reason it's important to not just activate but support local, locally led peace building is because it is so cost effective. Local people in um, the Congo, in the Middle East, in Zimbabwe, in Colombia, it's local people who know best what needs to be done. Because they live there, they know how it's happening. But mostly they don't get support. So Peace Direct brings them small amounts of money, very small, but gives them a global media coverage. So for example, one of our peace builders is in the Congo. We sent him $100. He gets on his motorbike, rides into the bush. He was a child soldier himself and he escaped. So he rides into the bush, buys a herd of goats with the $100 herds those goats to where the militia are hiding with the child soldiers that they've captured. And that in itself is risking his life because he knows that they're very trigger happy, they don't like intruders and they're high on drugs. So he arrives there, he negotiates with them, one goat for one child, five dollars. He brings those children back to their families and then the hard task begins because those children have been taught to kill their families. Many of them have done so. So you can imagine the trauma that those children have. It's heartbreaking. But it's those people on the ground who know how to resolve conflict, how to heal conflict, and more importantly, how to prevent conflict. And that's why they need support. 
Yeah, good. More and more people are working on peace. Mm -hmm. So uh, my next question is, how can we make peace? How can we make peace on a global level, but also on the personal level, in my family, on my working place, with my neighbor? How can I make peace? I heard uh, it is important to listen. This is one of the mm -hmm. uh, most important things. But what else would you say? Well, to build peace, we, as you rightly say, to build peace, we have to start with ourselves. And so to become awake, to observe what we are doing, what we're thinking minute to minute, to meditate, all these things are vital. That's the first job. It's the, probably the most difficult, but it's the first job. And then, in our community, to see what is lacking, what's needed. Uh, some people mention gardening together, to share a big piece of land and garden together. It's wonderful. Children learn to sow seeds and, and produce vegetables, and they love doing that. Um, people learn to share, to harvest together, to get their hands in the earth and, and get grounded again. These sort of things are so vital. And anybody can do it, even with a, with a window box, you know, to put some herbs. Anything that can get yourself growing things. It's, to, my, to my way of thinking, it's, it's the most, the shortcut to sanity. <laughs> because it grounds you every day. And <clears throat> then when we go a little bit wider, and look at what's necessary in our, in our town or our, our, our wider community. What we need, especially if we're in areas where there is danger of um, physical danger, like explosions or something like that, is to build, uh, build community through peace councils. Every community needs a peace council because we never know when something's going to explode. And we need people who will take the leadership at that point and who know how to defuse conflict. So when Nelson Mandela came out of jail in 1989, the first thing he did, or one of the first things that he did, was to set up a national peace council, a regional peace council, city peace councils, town councils, and village. And in each one of those, the most trusted people in the area were asked to take responsibility to build a peace plan for that area. So, when something happened like what they called necklacing, when they put a, a tire around somebody's neck and put petrol in it and light it, you have to go in very fast to stop that. So they trained people to do that, to defuse inter-tribal conflict or inter-community conflict. And all of us need that now, so that peace becomes something active instead of something just nice to have. It becomes something real, tangible, and that children learn. And this would be my next point, is that children need to learn non-violent communication. NVC, it's very well known now worldwide, and children take to it like ducks to water. They love doing it. So. They learn to be, for example, monitors of bullying in schools. So little children, even six years old, they know what bullying is, they've seen it. And they can easily learn the techniques to defuse it, to get the bully, to get attention for the bully so the bully learns not to do it. 
and the victim learns not to be a victim. So it's, it's a technique that children can learn aged five, six, seven. And the Dalai Lama says that if every child learned to meditate, there would be no war in 30 years. Imagine. And I believe that's true because I've seen it. When children learn to meditate, they become strong in themselves. They address the, they know how to deal with the issues of self-esteem and self-doubt. And children who feel confident and whole in themselves can become peacemakers. And beautifully, beautifully able for that. From the perspective of an international peace builder looking on Germany and the refugee situation, how the government is dealing with it, how the population is dealing with it, what is your opinion about what is happening here in Germany and in Europe right now? On the refugee situation, I believe Germany has taken a most courageous stand. Very controversial in the country, I know, and received a lot of um, criticism, Mrs. Merkel has. But what, they, what Germany has done enrages ISIS. It's exactly what ISIS, or the Islamic State so-called, does not want. Because what the Islamic State wants is to terrify people. They want their pictures on the front pages, they want everybody to go, ah, and run into their houses and hide. What they don't want is a country to open its doors and say, we're friendly, we welcome people from Muslim countries, Uh, we uh, are open to the thinking of Muslim people and their culture and we welcome them. This is anathema. This is just exactly what Islamic State does not want. They want to paint the West as anti-Muslim, as imperialist, as consumerist, capitalist and ugly. And what Germany has shown, especially with normal, ordinary people coming out with water and food and opening their homes, this is exactly what they don't want. So I feel Germany has been very wise. And it, 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 it's a lesson for all of us, particularly my country. So at the end, each of us can be a peace builder, just with opening our hearts, welcoming the refugees and creating a new top a uh, new picture image of a peaceful society? Yes, not in a naive way, because we have to be very realistic. There are a lot of difficulties. These people are traumatized. They've been bombed. They've been without ambulance services when their buildings fall down. They've been um, hounded and hated by their own government. So I'm talking about Syria. So these people are not easy. But it, it's a challenge for, we have a, a society in the West which has got so much of what we need. We, we have water, we have safety, we have food, we have employment. And what they need is some of that safety. And that we can offer, but we have to be very wise about it, very practical and not naive. And I feel that Germany particularly has shown its, what we say, its metal. Germany has shown its integrity and its strength in doing this. And as it's, it's a very good example. I've been to some of the refugee places in Berlin and in Hamburg, and I was very impressed by what's happening. 
and it's really not easy work. It's very, it's a big challenge, and it's the challenge of our age, and it won't stop. People from all the countries that have been so impoverished by our actions as the West are now naturally wanting to come to where their wealth is and where life is easier, and that won't stop. We have to deal with it. It can be a big chance in it, also. Yes, there's a big opportunity there. Yeah, you reached so much in your life about changing the world already or inspiring people or empowering other people. Uh, what is your next mission? Mm -hmm. uh, before I die, what I would love to do is install in the world a, a global system to prevent conflict. At the moment, we have global systems to intervene when people are fighting. We have the UN peacekeeping forces. We have the UN refugee service to try to sort out the mess of war. But we have no global system to prevent conflict. And for every one dollar that is spent on the prevention of conflict, $1,971 are spent on fighting war. It's crazy. So, my plan is now to develop a system uh, that would work at all levels, at community level, at city level, at national level and at global level, w for education for peace, to um, support uh, locally led peace builders, as I mentioned, to build national plans for peace development, peace education globally, and international and global peace maintenance, which could be done so easily now that we have incredible media reach throughout the world. And it seems to me uh, extraordinary that we sit in front of our televisions, transfixed by the horror that we're seeing in Syria, And we don't prevent it. It's preventable. All these conflicts are preventable. We know how to do it now. But we don't put any money behind it. And we don't put our best minds behind it. So that's my plan. Just a little plan. <laughs> Sounds very good. I'm happy you're doing it. And um, to the end, what would you give us as a wish from your heart as an advice, as a recommendation for our lives to become more empowered, uh, to take our role as leaders, each of us. For, I don't really give advice, but what I love is when every person can look inside and find their passion. What is it that you long to see in your life? And then to look at which skills you have, because every person has a different skill. Some people are artists, some are musicians, some are thinkers, some are writers, some are able to talk beautifully in public, politicians and so on. To find your skill and match that with your passion and then do it. Don't feel confined that you have to have a job, you have to be confined to the society as it is. No, break free, do what you long for because that passion will drive you through all the difficulties 
And if you match it with your skill, your gift, your many gifts that you have in your life, then you can, you can live a life that's not just awake, but fulfilled. And if everybody did that, we would have a very happy world. Thank you very much for this beautiful conversation. You're welcome. Filming for change.